and stress isn't the problem, right? Um, it's chronic habituated stress that's the problem. Mm. And it's the inability to relax and integrate that stress that's yeah. the problem. Stress in and of itself is actually very healthy. I like to stress myself consistently. And I like to relax. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, if we're using survival energy and if we're using rhythms of breath that are meant for escape mm. or that are meant for very small bursts mm. and we're using that throughout an extended period of time, the system is going to have a deep imbalance mm. and what is going to be required is it for, to, for it to rebalance. And that's typically overachievement into burnout, mm. which we see in a lot of leaders, CEOs, execs, founders. Mm. And what I've come to realize is if I wanted to build this organization to the depth and scale that I envision in the world, I needed to relax and I needed to take time for me and I needed yeah. to take time out. And that's a continued practice. Welcome to the Heart of Man podcast, a podcast for any man seeking to live in alignment with his deepest core and lead a life of profound meaning and connection. I'm your host, Alex Lehman, and I'm here to empower you through transformative conversations, eye-opening insights, and practical wisdom. Join me now as we venture into the heart of man. Let's dive in. How we breathe is how we think. It was this very sentence that was shared with me on the first ever breathwork circle that I was a part of. And it was this journey that forever changed the course of my life. And with these words, I'd like to welcome our next guest on the podcast, Edward Dangerfield. Edward is a nervous system specialist, teacher, and the visionary founder of the facilitated breath repatterning technique and Breathwork Bali. Edward's journey of transformation began after surviving a near-death experience where he found himself caught in an avalanche. This event left him grappling with the aftermath of post-traumatic stress disorder, bringing him down a journey of seeking the tools and practices that can help him heal and regulate his nervous system. On his path of exploring various healing modalities, he was eventually introduced to the power of conscious connected breathwork, and he never looked back. With a deep commitment of supporting others, he has since dedicated himself to helping individuals feel at home within their bodies by claiming the power of their own breath. My intention with this conversation was to go beyond the realm of breathwork to discuss Edward's life and perspectives outside of his work. I was especially interested in going into depth on the topic of relationship with the intention to expand beyond the limited perspectives we may have been conditioned into. And one of the core messages that we seem to have constantly come back to was the importance of being in a relationship to everything and having a balance between relating to ourselves and a wider community. Having personally undergone Edward's 400-hour facilitator training and forming a deep friendship with him over the last years, I'm incredibly excited to share this conversation with you. Edward's wisdom and insights have profoundly impacted my life. I have no doubt that they'll touch yours as well. Edward Dangerfield, hmm. welcome to the Heart of Man podcast. How are Thanks. you feeling today? Thanks so much, bro. Yeah, <laughs> feeling um, really good, feeling a lot of things. Mm -hmm. uh, very present, grounded, uh, very open in my heart today, mm -hmm. um, which I think comes from waking up with my four-year-old son in mm -hmm. my bed, which was super fun. Wow. Um, and yeah, I'm really excited for this conversation today mm. as well. Thank you so much for sharing. And yeah. yeah, what a beautiful as well image to have to wake up with your four-year-old son today. Um, that is definitely something I want to get into with you today. Yeah. Um, this topic of fatherhood. Mm, thank you. And the thing I want to just speak into is as well, for me, this level of 
joy and excitement that's present. Uh, but then as well, a level of groundedness, considering, you know, we've had so many of these conversations in our own way. And um, it feels like such an enriching experience to actually come into a studio and have as well other people be part of a conversation uh, that we have. So, and I'm excited really to go into all kinds of topics. One of the intentions that we have for sure is to speak into the topic of relationship. But before we get into that, I want to just preface a little bit. Uh, for the audience, who you are, um, and yeah, I just want to speak into, you know, you're the founder of Breathwork Bali, mm. um, you're a teacher of the breath, or a modality called facilitated breath repatterning, and you've taught numerous um, practitioners now who are all across the world by now, yeah. <laughs> into this modality, and there's all kinds of beautiful, fun, interesting things happening down here in Bali, uh, as well with a lab that has now opened up about a year ago. Um, so there's a lot of interesting things in the making. And from what I know about you, mm. I recognize this has been a journey of getting here. Yeah. Uh, a journey of, I believe, over than 10 years. And the thing I want to just maybe start off with is how you got here. And perhaps you can share with us um, this, this, this defining moment, this defining, uh, I'm going to call it this breakdown moment that really brought mm. you on a path to... Um, finding the breath yeah thank you bro um well let's just dive straight into that breakdown moment mm. um there were there was one one critical breakdown moment which mm. was being caught in an avalanche mm. which was about 10 years ago like yeah I, I think it's pretty much like bang on a decade now um probably a decade and a month <laughs> <laughs> so yeah that was this incredible uh time when my life took a, a, a totally different turn mm. and essentially what happened was uh, easy to look back on it now uh, with a little bit more clarity but I was it was a near-death experience and so mm. yeah I was skiing uh, in the mountains in Canada uh, I was in what we call the back country so that's out of the avalanche controlled area and it had been a pretty good snowfall the night before um, with a wind that had loaded a lot of snow onto certain aspects or certain faces so certain mm. sides of the mountain and yeah, I dropped in to ski some out of bounds terrain that I'd skied, yeah, probably like two, 300 times before. Mm. Uh, so I was very familiar with the terrain, but that day there was a particular kind of cluster of events that came together and mm. um, that led the mountain to slide. Mm. And so uh, it wasn't what we would classify in avalanche terms as huge. It's a class two, which right. is enough to bury a person. And so, yeah, I went for a bit of a ride. Mm. I went for a ride down a mountainside uh, for probably about 70 or 80 meters. Mm. Uh, I was ragdolled and tumbled. And wow. essentially, I was uh, fighting in the snow to keep my head above for like 60, 70 meters. Wow. And when the avalanche set or came to a stop, I was buried up to my neck. Mm. So I could still breathe. Thankfully, not a full burial, which probably would have led well, potentially to suffocation. Mm. But I knew, I knew that I had to fight for my life to keep my head above. And I knew that if I, if I didn't do that, if I got buried under, I, I'd probably have maybe six, maybe seven minutes of, of air around me mm. um, in reasonably soft packed snow for my companion to dig me out. So they would have to locate me under the snow using an avalanche transceiver and then they would have to use a probe, which we all carry, which is basically a collapsible mm. three-meter rod. They would have to probe the snow to find out where my body was located, mm. uh, put their shovel together from their backpack, and then dig me out. Mm. 
And so, yeah, all of that was kind of going through my mind as I'm like being ragdolled by an incredibly large amount of snow, which is really heavy. Mm. And so, yeah, when I came to uh, a set, as it were, um, buried up to my neck, uh, there wasn't really much relief in that moment because we were still out of bounds. So we were still in the back country. And there was an acknowledgement then that if one pitch had slid, then more could as well. Mm. So basically it's like, uh, I don't know, like maybe like it's like walking on very thin glass above like, you know, crocodiles. It's like <laughs> I knew that something else could emerge. I knew that I could be in more danger. So I never really had the opportunity to relax. So I had to get dug out. I had to get my gear and I had to hike back in bounds. And, and unfortunately, what happened was I never really found safety after that experience um, for a few weeks. Mm. So my system was revving consistently with a lot of adrenaline and cortisol mm. essentially as if i was still in the avalanche mm. and i was shaky and on edge and didn't really know what was going on mm. and so yeah being a, in a ski town uh and growing up in the uk the natural solution to most problems is to start drinking mm. uh, <laughs> which is really effective at numbing but not yeah. very effective at actually mm. like changing any of the mechanistic behavior that was underneath what was going on yeah yeah so then uh, a couple of weeks after that i i was lucky enough to be in connection with a someone who was a, a somatic experiencing practitioner an se practitioner mm. who had worked with who was in their training and was versed and understood in the nervous system to a reasonable degree and i went for a session with them in vancouver um drove down and i knew i needed some support and help with this and i had a session and i i relived the whole avalanche in their treatment room. I went through all of the movement patterns and reflexes. I ended up on the floor, like flailing around and then went into this deep, deep rest and relaxation response at the end. Mm. And looking back now, for those of you that, you that are familiar, and for those of the listeners who are familiar, sure. I went through a trauma cycle. So mm. I got basically re-traumatized into the experience mm -hmm. in a safe space, guided through it, went through the whole thing and then went into rest afterwards. Yeah. If I can just pause you here, yeah. can you speak a little bit into this trauma cycle for the people who may not be aware of this, you as well spoke into that your system has been in a threat response for numerous weeks mm. after the avalanche has passed. So it would probably be interesting as well for listeners to know about this. And um, yeah, I'm sure you, I'm, I wonder as well if you were able to communicate that at that time, but or if mm. you just simply noticed, okay, I, I just noticed myself feeling very stressed right now, but I, maybe not really understanding the actual mechanism of what was happening in your body. Yeah, thank you, bro. Yeah, at the time I didn't have the self-awareness mm. to know what was really going on. I just knew I didn't feel right. Right. Like something had shifted. And mm. obviously like being caught in an avalanche, it's pretty clear that like that was the event that had done that. So that was easy in, in, in and of itself. Right. Also, you know, I was, I was living in the mountains for, for that point, like uh, would have been about 15 years. So it's not uncommon for like friends or colleagues or, you know, like other people to be caught in avalanches. Like it was something we were, you know, trained for and used to. But I wasn't aware of what it had actually done to my system. Not on that level and depth that I would now, that I would be able to recognize and understand, you know, a shift in breathing rhythm or a tightness in the diaphragm, that sort of thing. So yeah, I just knew like something was off, mm -hmm. yeah. And then so getting to the other inquiry around the trauma cycle, I mean like in a natural in an ideal world, you know, a human is exposed to a threat. We mobilize energy. We avoid the threat. We then go into a natural response of um, discharge, de-escalation, yeah. integration, relaxation, mm -hmm. right? 
And so that would then be like healthy response to stimulus. The example is in Bali, and the easy one is riding a scooter, having a near miss. It's like, you, you know, something comes, you know, maybe out of peripheral vision, whole body tightens, sharp inhale of breath, mobilize the steering wheel, dodge the other scooter. Mm. And then there's this opportunity of a downshift, rest, relaxation. And then maybe even we go into like, you know, we meet our friend at a coffee shop afterwards and you're like, you, you never guess what happened to me. You tell the story. They're like, wow, they hold mm. space, they support you. And then there's another wave of relief, right? So that's kind of like life, you mm. know, we get exposed to threat, we mobilize energy, mm -hmm. we meet it, and then we de-escalate and integrate. Yeah. And I've heard you as well speak into this, that the problem isn't so much that we are in a position of being put in a threat response, mm. but rather it's much more about how do we orientate ourselves back into a level of safety. Can totally. you speak a bit more into that? Yeah. And so like the example I just gave you was just around like this idea of like, you know, some connection to a friend as an example is like in a safe space in the coffee shop that we're familiar with. And that allows us to kind of like tell the story and the narrative and it allows us cognitively, mentally and emotionally to sort of make sense of the experience. Yeah. Right. Mm. And so, yeah, like life's going to happen. We're going to keep being exposed to threat. Mm. And that's, that's part of life. Like, mm. yeah. And if we attempt to deny that, it's going to be challenging. <laughs> so yeah, we have an opportunity to decide how am I going to meet these, these stresses. Mm -hmm. And with that also, how do I integrate my day? Yeah. Maybe every day, mm -hmm. what are my processes and protocols every day mm -hmm. where I can reflect on what's been challenging and I can, you know, relax into that. One of the ways we do that is in, is in relationship to other people, to our friends, to, you know, romantic partner, to mm -hmm. our colleagues. Uh, we share challenge and we're story and sort of vision and myth based uh, animals, mammals, essentially. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think, uh, our ability to work with our physiology mm. and our stress and survival responses and our ability to understand that on a much more fundamental and deep level is going to allow us greater freedom of choice, mm. both in the moment where we have a stress response that's mm. activated probably naturally and for good reason. Mm. And then afterwards, like in how we like deactivate and integrate that. Yeah. Yeah, and coming back as well to the experience that you had, I, mm. I can imagine as well that that really wasn't available to you or the case. No. Mm. I mean, a couple things there. Like one is I was probably already quite out-resourced. Mm. And what that means is it was March. Uh, I'd already been skiing a lot, working a lot. Um, I was in quite a challenging relationship at the time. Mm. And I was also starting to really question. I was entering into like Saturn return phase of life i would have been like 31 30 32 then uh and i was i was starting to question like what i was actually doing and deeper meaning as well so it was kind of a, a like in there in there somewhere over my shoulder there was an existential crisis brewing as well <laughs> so like when you kind of put all those things together and then you throw an avalanche on top it's mm -hmm. like i like to make the analogy that like the lid of my pandora's box got torn yeah. off and thrown away mm -hmm. and then i was i didn't have many skills mm. Or tools and or resources or yeah. community mm -hmm. to really navigate that very effectively. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering how, how did you meet that initially as that arose? Because, you know, we, we kind of framed it as a breakdown. Mm. And the reason why I feel this is really important to speak into as I shared as well with mm. you before our conversation, um, having gone through an incredibly challenging experience myself over mm. the past year where I truly had an experience of breakdown where literally everything was stripped from me. Everything that I, I loved, I cared about, everything that I believed in. And ultimately as well, I noticed myself questioning myself at an existential level. Hmm. 
And speaking into that or hearing that as a listener, that doesn't really sound very attractive, right? No. But coming out of that experience, I, I noticed immense value in that breakdown because it allowed me to really take a deeper look at myself and bring awareness to certain aspects of me that I wasn't aware of yet mm. and really bring my presence to those and finding my path into deeper alignment. So I'm wondering, um, how, how did that fit in for you? And would you say that was a similar journey that that breakdown that you had um, led you down? Yeah, thank you, bro. Yeah, I mean, like the, the lid off the box was torn off and thrown away. And, and it, in that, it didn't get any easier. Like after that experience, I would say it didn't get any easier for probably a year. Mm. Um, and how I navigated that was mostly through avoidance, denial and alcohol. Mm. Uh, and it wasn't until I started to really look at myself on a deeper level and really inquire. You know, it was something that was just confusing as well, right. you know, because I had all of this white privilege that was like, you know, s sitting there. And I was like, mm. okay, so here I am coming from this, you know, what appeared to be an affluent family and I was privately educated and I have a university degree in economics and, you know, I was an entrepreneur mm. and then here I am 32 with this existential crisis and, and the wheels have really come off. Like mm. everything that I kind of valued is no longer of value. And yeah, as I think you're, you know, you've integrated, it's, that's a really tough place to be. Mm. And in that sort of death, there is, a rebirth that's available mm. that isn't a construct or wasn't a construct in my case of wanting to be something or someone mm. to please other people, mm. to have success, to have wealth. Mm. It was, it was really a, a kind of a really big fuck you moment. Yeah. It was a fuck you to everything that anyone had ever pinned on me for validation externally. And it was just coming home to myself of, okay, well, everyone else thinks these things are important, but what's actually important for me? Right. Um, and that was tough because there hadn't been space for that in my childhood. It had been, uh, this is, this is what we do. This is culture. This is, you know, and it wasn't this spaciousness of an exploration of like, well, what do you like doing? Mm. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. so that's a, that's a really interesting place to sit <laughs> in. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then. It was somewhat unique in as much as, as I mentioned, I was an entrepreneur. So I, I did have, I had some funds to work with mm. in that time. So it was also like I didn't really have to work. Mm. Um, I just basically burned my savings mm. in this like weird state of self-inquiry, like seeking modalities and yeah, attempting to wean off alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> Hearing your journey, it reminded me of um, a conversation I had recently with um, your close friend, George, as well. Mm. And he had a very similar experience in the sense that, you know, he was this thriving CEO, thriving entrepreneur. Um, and, and really, you know, from, I guess, the common metrics of society, successful. Yes. But then he had this breakdown moment, which required him to have a deep look into the identity from which he was coming from and recognizing in that moment that it wasn't based on maybe his most authentic truth, but rather certain imprints that he may have received from his conditioning experiences. Um, and it, it sounds like you had a very similar moment in that way that, you know, th this breakdown moment allowed you to look into 
who like where was I coming from? Yeah. You know, how was I showing up? And and was that really in alignment with what feels truthful for me, with what like what feels aligned to me? Hundred percent. I think, you know, I I and I love George very much. He's a he's a dear friend and uh I, I know his story well. And I can see there's an incredible amount of similarities in in, yeah. in going into that space. And for him, I mean it was uh, also a life and death situation around a critical health in incident. And so um you know, there's that that it's kind of thinking about like real life begins when you realize you've only got one. Mm. And it, it was definitely that moment of being like, okay, like, am I going to choose this? And there was a sort of a willingness to lean in and be like, I'm going to choose life. Mm. And there was an, a, a much more of an empowering moment that came alive from that space of being like, instead of just kind of like drifting through this, I actually realized that I could die. Mm. And not only could I die, but I could also choose to end it. Mm. And somehow in touching and brushing into that level and depth of mm. inquiry around suicide, I realized I was actually choosing life. Mm. And that was very empowering. Mm. Um, and in doing that, I was like, well, if I'm choosing to live, I'm also choosing how I live. Yeah. Like at least within my own self, right? Mm -hmm. At least within locus of control, what are the things I can choose? And so, yeah, it gave me a, an inquiry into, I think, t motivation and then subsequent behavior, mm -hmm. right? So what was driving me yep. beyond like neurochemicals, beyond mm -hmm. the dopamine, right? And even then, like, why was I, why was I self-validating or was I self-validating? So I think, you know, when you touch into it, like all of the external validation that I was receiving wasn't adding up to the internal validation that I wasn't giving myself mm -hmm. because I wasn't valid. I wasn't successful in my own eyes. And it wasn't that it was an imposter syndrome. It's, I generally wasn't successful because the metrics that I wanted to live by, I wasn't living by. And things like, you know, deep connection to self, spaciousness and time, right relationship to the planet. Mm. Uh, yeah, living in a healthy interdependent relationship versus codependency. Yeah. Those were all like really important metrics to me. Yeah. And I was scoring like zero on all of them. Right. And so, yeah, society was scoring me at a 10 on how I might be appearing to show up. But really, within my own self, I was I was bankrupt, yep. and it was a harsh wake up call. Hmm. Like that, 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 that essentially was the existential crisis. Yeah. And I think you know, early thirties is a great time to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely agreed. Yeah, no, I'm I'm happy as well that I've really been going through that. You know, myself. You know, at, at this time frame, right? Um, yeah. So interesting. I mean, the first thing that I want to speak into is that this contemplation of death allowed you really to um, appreciate life more and actually uh. be more deliberate in the way you want to live. Yes. Right? And and the other contemplation that seems to have come alive was um, around this idea of relationship. Yes. And perhaps we can just as well expand on what you mean by that. And interesting enough, we as well had this conversation before we started mm. around um, and what I really love is how we have quite similar views on this topic that, you know, relationship can be seen on a much broader spectrum than what we maybe are generally indoctrinated into. Could you speak a little bit more into what relationship means to you and what you ended up starting to, what did you start um, to unpack and to reveal for yourself around this topic of relationship? Yeah, thank you. That word for me initially had a connotation around, you know, ultimately like a man and a woman <laughs> and, and how they interacted, right? Which is like such a reductionist approach and yeah. so like <laughs> laced with all sorts of like, you know, 
<laughs> Northern European, North American, white, you know, yeah. classic kind of stuff, right? I'm sure a lot of people can relate. <laughs> yeah. And then I started to really get into that and be like, okay, well, but, you know, like what it actually is relationship. And I think some of the most valuable teachings that I've received have been from the native Canadian elders. Uh, yeah, I spent four years cultivating friendships with elders yeah. and sitting in sweat lodge ceremony and understanding a little bit more about their practices and the way that they wanted to live. And that happened after this breakdown moment, yeah. is that correct? Yeah, so that that was kind of like in my mid-30s. Right. Um, I was, yeah, through like uh, some circumstance and, and uh, like synchronicity, I was introduced to an elder called Vern, mm. Vern Glenshanos. And I spent a lot of time uh, connecting with Vern, mm. a lot of the time just sitting with him. <laughs> I wouldn't really say much, but it was just his presence was enough. And <clears throat> what Vern helped me to understand and see was that I was in relationship to everything. Mm. And it was about how I was in relationship to water. And that was just like, if I just explore my relationship to water, even this morning, it's been incredible, <laughs> right? <laughs> I think about swimming. I think about a shower. I think about hydration. I think about urination. Mm. You know, I think about all of the ways I've been in relationship to water as mm. an element. Mm. And, and so... I started to deeply contemplate, explore, and observe myself and the relationships I had with elements. Mm. And then, yeah, from that, I started to explore more about like the relationship I had to movement or to breath. Mm. And this also the relationship that I have to myself. And so, yeah, it's like relationship for me becomes this inquiry of like, how is energy and matter like exchanging, communicating, moving? Mm. So it's like, how is the unseen turning into the seen and then turning back into the unseen again. So it's kind of like a, an exploration of metaphysics mm. through like putting myself in the witness or in the observer state. Mm. And I suppose it's more about using nature through observation as the teacher. Yeah, I love hearing this. And you know, it, it was just fascinating to hear how you spoke about you know, your connection to water already just in this early morning that you've had um, and, and considering, yeah, how how much you've already been in relationship and connection with that aspect. And interestingly enough, this connection, this relationship is all around us. Yeah. It's there every single day. Yeah. But the question is how, how conscious, how present are we to that? Yeah. How, how much do we allow ourselves to really bring that into our awareness um, and versus... I guess taking it for granted totally. know, is the word that comes up for me, yeah. right? And and then the inquiry as well that arises for me as well, how does that as well influence our lives once we have that deeper understanding of our relationship to the elements, right? Our, our mm. connection to the earth. And what did, that, what did that look like for you? Yeah, there's a deeper quality of responsibility that starts to emerge. Interesting. That's, right? that's not what I would have expected you to say. <laughs> yeah. Tell me more about yeah. that. Yeah, so <laughs> like... I know where my water came from this morning, mm. right? So it's this understanding of how did it get here? How am I in relationship to it? If I take the same with food and I start to explore my relationship to food mm. and I start to look at how it got to me, yeah. I start through that inquiry, I start to understand how everyone else has been in relationship to it. Mm. And what that requires me to do is to get radically honest about the impacts that I'm having on other people. Mm -hmm. right? And so one of the things that big problems for me was that I viewed myself in isolation. Mm. I viewed myself as this autonomous human mm. doing life, 
deeply disconnected. It was that disconnect that was doing a couple things. One is it was making me fucking miserable mm. and ultimately probably quite depressed. Mm. Uh, and, and the other one is through that disconnection, I basically had a lack of love yeah. in, in, in a lot of different ways. So yeah, what came alive was this responsibility. Mm. And I take the relationship to my house, right? As you know, I live in a reclaimed wooden house that's solar powered, right? So this morning, like any power I used came from the sun. And so that responsibility ultimately is on me. And I think if we ignore our connections to things, we have an opportunity to kind of just deny. Mm. We can kind of just bypass the impact we're having on the planet, mm. on other people, on, on, yeah, on everything. And so mm. when we start to explore our relationships mm. with conscious awareness, it starts to lead us to a path of greater self-responsibility. And responsibility is this beautiful thing because it allows us to have greater freedom, yeah. right? Because we can understand where our food and water is coming from. We understand how we're housing ourselves. We understand mm -hmm. how we're breathing. We understand mm -hmm. how we're in relationship to friends. Mm -hmm. And instead of blaming other things outside of ourselves mm -hmm. for our life circumstance, through this journey of responsibility, mm -hmm. we start to actually empower ourselves, mm -hmm. but on a much deeper way that we know how we can get water. We know how we can get food. We know how we can survive. And what I learned from the natives is they could flourish in their environment because they observed it. And it's through that observation of how I'm in relationship to my environment mm. that's brought a deep embodied sense of safety. Mm. And it's from that sense of safety that I can show up with greater freedom mm -hmm. and connection or love. Yeah. This is so interesting. I mean, there's so many things that <laughs> I could get into. But I mean, first of all, I, this, this tension between responsibility mm. and power. And the first thing that I like think of when I think of this idea of responsibility, and at least that was my impression in the past has been that it, it feels burdening yes it feels heavy yes but i recognize the more i claimed a level of responsibility mm. the more empowered i felt there was mm. this interesting connection piece mm. around what i claim responsibility over and the empowerment then that i feel as a yes. result because of the choices then that, that I now get to make because of the responsibility that I'm willing to take. It, it um, is heavy. Mm -hmm. I think it's really fair, right? Yeah. And what it's called is becoming an adult. Like mm -hmm. that's really the path of growing up, right? And, you know, <laughs> as we're talking about in, in like manhood or masculinity, it is mm -hmm. stepping forward and up and saying like, I'm consciously making these choices. Yeah. What I came to realize is I'd been making those choices anyway. Yeah. I just hadn't been doing it consciously. Right. And I've been kind of like pretending I wasn't or avoiding mm -hmm. it. But when I actually stared it down, mm -hmm. and I think staring down reality yeah. is one of the most effective things we can do to create yeah. more spaciousness and freedom and love in our lives. Yeah. yeah so with that, yeah, it, there was yeah. a heaviness. Yeah. And I think that's where it can be really overwhelming. Hmm. Like when we look at a meta problem and yeah. we see the enormity of what we're yeah. going to face, especially like in my own self, I was like, oh, I'm a fucking mess. Hmm. I didn't, you know, I had to just kind of take it bite size. Right. Yeah, and work on one piece at a time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I love that realness and I love as well just the, yeah, like truthful expression. It is heavy, right? Yeah. And it's interesting because I was actually, I've been contemplating over the last few months just this distinction between, you know, what is the difference between a boy yeah. and a man? Yeah. Right? And I mean, I've, I've heard different iterations of other people and I guess as well in my own contemplations, what I have been exploring within myself is that in many ways on this journey of, becoming a man and still being a boy in many ways it is this self-centric paradigm 
from which we come from. And mm. that doesn't necessarily have to be negative because in that way, like it's, it's required, it's needed, mm -hmm. right? It's mm -hmm. like, you know, that individual needs to be supported on that journey to, to become that, right? Yes. Whereas what I've been exploring around this idea of, you know, becoming an adult, as you said, yeah. <laughs> is this idea of having a connection, I'm going to say, to something bigger than ourselves. Sure. Right? And that's kind of like, as well, what we've been speaking into, this, this understanding of we're not just this autonomous, isolated being, but rather we're connected to everything to some degree. And that, it, it does bring a level of responsibility to it and a level as well of empowerment through, well, considering that I am in relationship to everything and everybody, how would I like to then be of service to that? Yes. Hmm. Yeah, there's this, I, there's a few pieces that come alive for me there, right? So the first one is this idea of self versus collective, right? And that's on a spectrum. On one end, we've got self-centric culture, which is probably the strongest in the United States. Mm -hmm. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we've got collective culture, which is mm -hmm. present in most indigenous communities yeah. to a very high degree. Mm -hmm. And I think where we sit on that spectrum between collective and self and our ability to pulse between those is probably going to shape the way that we can relate effectively in the world. So if I'm only self-centric, I'm selfish, yeah. which is going to basically create a lot of tension in my interpersonal relationships, mm. i.e. they're going to fail, mm. right? And so ultimately, I'm, I'm not going to be able to meet my needs and wants very effectively. Right. If I'm only focused on collective, then it becomes shadowy where I'm not going to honor myself. Mm -hmm. This is like the martyr, mm -hmm. right? And then I'm giving from a place of lack and not willing to mm. receive. So what I came to recognize is how do I actually honor those parts of me that are unique, that mm. are uniquely me, how do I honor other people and their unique talents and gifts? And how does that all come together in such a way that I'm also part of mm. a collective, right? Mm -hmm. And I can honor collective. Yeah. So that's one thing. And then the other thing is part of what I really understood, if we take water as the example, is um, like I love exploring the cycles of life with my son Onyx, right? And I tell stories about the water. And I like to say how here in Bali, it rains up on, you know, Batu Karu, and then it flows all the way down through the Subat, and it turns into rice, and then the rice farmer harvests the rice and brings it to him, and he eats the rice, and then he, he poops, and then it goes down. <laughs> and, you know, so I talk about, like, how it, 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 everything flows, right? Mm. And I, I, I could do the same with air. Mm. And here we are sitting in this podcast studio. You and I are breathing the same air. And when I had that embodied recognition of that level of connection of every human on the planet. Mm. You know, Vern, my teacher, would say, this smoke that we're burning right now, mm. in four days will travel around the whole planet mm. and everyone will breathe it. And that is your prayer. And it was like, okay, wow, that's an incredible piece of information. Now, I don't know if it's four days, it probably might be longer, three weeks, but on trade winds, that's gonna happen, right? With water, it's the same. Like the water that's moving through me is going to move through you. Mm -hmm at some point. Mm -hmm. And what I loved was the recognition of the interconnectedness of all things and all beings. Mm -hmm. And that gave me this sense of awe and sense of wonder that there's something like quite incredible that's happening here that's beyond the isolated I. Mm. It sounds like having been exposed to the indigenous um, tribes and as well being connected to um, your elder Vern mm. has really allowed you to I guess, take a step out of the, the culture that you were um, raised into and really allowed yourself to explore a much more, I'm going to say, holistic way 
of operating in, yes. in the world and operating in life. One of the concepts or ideas that I've really been exploring has been this lack of elderhood within our culture mm. and the absence of, um, yeah, I, I guess deep wisdom that is passed on from, you know, people who have really moved into a stage where they, they're sharing from their experiential learning. And so with that, we have an absence of um, really people who do not receive the guidance that's required in order to um, move into a new stage of evolution or maturity. Um, I'm, I'm wondering what influence did Vern have on you? Uh, you've kind of already been touching on it, but mm. I'm wondering if you want to yeah. um, just Thank you, communicate that. I mean, I think the first thing was his presence. Mm -hmm. And his presence was just incredible. Just to sit and be with him in his presence, there was something that was magnetic and calming and spacious. And his words were just incredibly well chosen and landed. And he had this amazing ability with humor. You know, for those listeners that have an understanding of, of Canadian history, like a real understanding of Canadian history, you'll know it's really dark, especially for the indigenous people. And... You know, as, as someone that grew up in the UK, I moved to Canada as a visitor and I have Canadian citizenship and I'm, I'm ex extremely appreciative of that. And it, it comes with a sort of sense of guilt, a healthy guilt, I would say. And Vern, like he, he called me a polar bear. He said I was white on the outside and red on the inside. <laughs> and so it's kind of like can you explain that <laughs> yeah so it's like you know i have white skin on the outside but in, inside i'm red and, and native canadians they say they have red skin mm. so he, he kind of said that like even though i appeared to be a white person i actually i was i was indian in my heart mm. in that sense so i you know we laughed about that but Vern had this way with humor where he would say things that were like very edgy or inappropriate like about white people and about like settlement or about like abuse and and he would say it with like a piercing stony face and i would be like fuck and then he would just smile and laugh ah oh, just kidding and so he had this way of like taking things that were actually really really tough and challenging and difficult and making lightness of them mm. and you know as you've experienced with the work that we do with breath work and holding people in really deep emotional states mm. i think there's a there's a balance between the ability to hold people in their deepest pain and then also kind of make lightness out of it mm. where like there, there, there is a requirement to lean into humor. And so I think what Vern, one of the things he really brought into my life was mm. yeah, kind of an ability to laugh at like the, the human experience. Mm. I think there was a lot of seriousness that was present in me in that, in that experience in my early thirties, mm. um, probably for good reason as well, to a certain degree, but he allowed me to sort of sit in the heaviness, but also be with the lightness. And I think that was really what Vern taught me was mm -hmm. the ability to be with, with paradox, yeah. uh, and to be with, um, yeah, like opposing tensions yes. and hold them both. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Th and that is definitely the thing as well that came up for me and mm. something I really appreciate about you, you know, like you have this ability to, First of all, understand the extremes of the both ends of the tension yeah. and hold balance within yeah. like everything. Yeah. And, and there's so many different spectrums we can speak into yes. where this tension exists. Yes. And you have an understanding of, okay, where are the extremes? Yes. And where do I operate? Because yeah. one of the tendencies that can be present for so many of us is a binary approach. Right? Yeah, it's either totally. this or that. Yeah, totally. And it's like we swing onto the yeah. one hand and then all of a sudden this doesn't work for me, for us. And then we go to the opposite yeah. spectrum. Yeah. And that just doesn't work. Right. Yeah. And so having this 
ability to hold paradox is, in my opinion, a, like a very strong, yeah, it's a strength. Yeah, absolutely, bro. Like, you know, I can think about how I overworked, overachieved, sought a certain sense of recognition and mm. success and all of those pieces. And then, yeah, I just, you know, really like forgot about all of that. And the yeah. pendulum swung the other way. And I went and lived in a stone cottage for five months yeah. with no contact. Mm -hmm. Like that was like an extreme isolation. Mm. And neither, none of those behaviors were healthy, mm -hmm. you know. So what I enjoy now is the middle way. Yeah. And the middle way for me is the acknowledgement that I'm incredibly structured mm. and I'm also super flowy and spacious. Mm. It depends where you look. I'm deadly serious mm. and I, yeah, sometimes can be quite funny. Right. And, and so, <laughs> you know, I'm very generous yeah. in certain ways, but I'm incredibly stingy in others. Mm. And I love looking at these parts of me that say, mm. yeah, I'm super calm, but yeah, like, you know, put me in a Muay Thai ring and I'm going to fight. So mm. I think the ability to embrace all of these facets of humanity of our own humanness and then witness it in another and accept it in another mm -hmm. is really what I'm here for. Yeah. I mean, this is really such a gift and, and really as well, one of the topics that I want to speak into with you, this idea of being in a relationship to all parts mm. of ourselves. And, yeah. You know, this is something that like, very often comes as well in, in the breathwork sessions that we do, right? Totally. You know, people touch into certain aspects that they may have been taught, oh, I can't, I can't go into this, yep. or, you know, they've been taught to experience shame for those parts, but yep. then as a result of that, they don't feel um, a sense of wholeness within, right? Because yeah. there's something, it, like there's, and it's, it can be just this, like, sensation, like something's missing or something is not quite right. Yeah. You know? And, and, and speaking into this idea of like integrating all those aspects of ourselves. Yeah, there's parts that we can exile and cut off and, mm. and not be in touch with because we're not safe to. And that's mm. really wise, you know. This yeah. is like, I think the first place is to approach it from that wisdom. Like mm. in my childhood container, what did I need to do to receive love, right? That's the first thing. We're looking for love and freedom, right? So what did I need to do to, to have a sense of love and have a sense of freedom? Yeah, and as I started to unpack that, I realized there were a bunch of behaviors there that I had, you know, practiced, cultivated that were, yeah, pretty fucking toxic, honestly. And I had to really, like, take a really good deep look at them. W one of the biggest ones was people-pleasing, mm. right? And it was the, the inability to actually sit with someone else in their discomfort or for someone else to be... One of the biggest ones was really disappointment. I was really challenged... To, to sit in someone else's disappointment, especially women. Yeah, of yourself. Yeah, like if a, yeah. if a, disappointing if a romantic, somebody. Yeah, disappointing yeah. someone else, um, especially romantic partners. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, that, that disappointment of unrealistic expectation that a romantic partner might have on me, mm -hmm. that I would then, yeah, I would start doing backflips or like, you know, I'd start doing anything to avoid their sadness and disappointment mm -hmm. when it's their own unreasonable expectation sure. that I really just wanted them to sit in. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I think, you know, that, that's been very, very interesting to explore. Yeah. And we have this opportunity in all relationships to explore mm. ourselves and be like, okay, like, what are the parts of me that I don't want to face? What are the emotions I don't want to feel? And you touched into it around shame. It's like, a for a lot of men, there's a shame and vulnerability mm. in general expression of, of emotion, right? So, like, this is where, you know, a lot of men are blamed for being... Well, a lot of men are, uh, are, are labeled as emotionally unavailable. Mm. A lot of men are blamed as, as being emotionally unavailable. And both of those things could probably be quite true. Mm. And the deeper question for me is why? Like, why are men not willing to feel into their heart and express themselves? Yeah. And normally it's because they have been shamed in the past. That's it. And or that expression is weaponized against them later yeah. in the future. 
So I start to sort of explore how safe am I to be me? And what I've come to realize is it's very variable. <laughs> so normally our conversations don't happen in a podcast room. They happen like at ammo, like in, sure. a, in a sauna, or they happen, you know, over a cup of tea. But, and I feel very safe in my expression to you. And now I'm noticing that I, I can still feel quite safe in expressing in conversation with you, even though we're recording it. Yeah. There's, thankfully, this isn't live and there's no one sitting with us. So it kind of <laughs> keeps it like you and me chatting that's and it, hanging out, that's right? It. Uh, yeah, so I think it, I've been interested to explore not just like this is me and I'm going to just be authentic. It's like, mm. look, there's a sliding scale of my authenticity mm. and I'm going to have really a decent level of discernment around when I share what. Mm -hmm. And I'm now better at assessing how safe I am to share those parts of me mm. um, at different times. Yeah, yeah and, and speaking into that, it seems like it can as well be quite healthy at certain times to, yeah, maybe want to, I'm, I'm going to say, like withhold certain expressions of us, even though they may be most truthful for us because we don't feel safe within that moment. Yes. And also that that expression might impact other people. Yeah. I mean, there's some things I've done that I'm deeply ashamed of. Right. right? And I'm not going to speak to them. Sure. And that's because I'm ashamed of them because of the impact they have basically on myself mm -hmm. uh, and potentially on other people who have, you know, I've, I've impacted. Mm -hmm. That's that quality of discernment that I think sometimes people forget in the yeah. search of authenticity, mm -hmm. right? And so this idea that I'm just, I'm just sharing my truth yeah. is, is incredibly damaging if we're not contemplating the impact that that's going to have on other exactly. people. Yeah. Right. It kind of comes back to this topic of relationship, right? How, right. Is, how is what I'm doing, how is what I'm saying, how is how I'm being influencing another person and impacting them? Yeah. And so that was like the deeper question is like, how does my existence hmm. like impact life? <laughs> right. <laughs> Which that's is an interesting question that not, probably not many people ask themselves. Right. Actually. And that was why I was sitting there and I was like, wow, like, what am I, am I, am I bringing anything here yeah. or am I just taking, hmm. right? And, and so what I kind of settled upon is, you know, this human experience isn't for me to just take. Hmm. This human experience is for me to, to create and to co-create. And when I recognized this was a co-creative process hmm. where I was in collaboration with humans and the light and life force energy, things really started to shift, hmm. you know, in a way that I couldn't kind of have imagined. Mm -hmm. And so I think it was the embracing of that tension between self and community. Mm. And it was like, okay, so I'm here for me. Yeah. Let's get real on that one. Mm. <laughs> and I'm also here for humanity. Mm. And how do those both coexist? Mm. And that is a question I continue to ask myself mm. in, I think, really in a deep way every quarter, like every, every kind of like, mm -hmm. you know, quarter of the year, I kind of sit down and I'm like, okay, now what? Mm. Um, and that's, I think, where there's been evolution in, mm -hmm. in what I do mm. in terms of, the way I show up in service and work. Mm. Like, as you know, the organization's evolving rapidly yep. in terms of business. And that's coming from a place of the willingness for these stages and chapters to close and these parts of me to die for something else to be born. I'm wondering where that value of, of giving back kind of came from for you, you know, considering or this, this contemplation of, you know, where am I just attempting to take versus actually trying to give. And, and really understanding yeah. as well this this connection between self and community. It's it's interesting because we get into this kind of like very philosophical discussion. My my <laughs> grandfather, uh, he he 
he taught me this question <clears throat> and he asked me, is any act of giving ever selfless? Mm. Right? And it's this idea that when I give, I'm always going to receive mm. somehow. Right? So every act of giving, giving has a certain quality of selfishness. Yeah. And I've really been contemplating that. And I, and I suppose it, when, this is the, the, be, the beauty of compromise in romantic relationship. Mm. When I give someone something and it hurts me, not harms me, but hurts me, i.e. like it comes at a cost. And that cost could be like, it could be my energy, it could be my focus, it could be monetary. But if I give from that place without desiring anything back in return, I still feel good. <laughs> I still get the benefit of feeling good about it. Mm. One of the Lakota traditions is to give away things that really are meaningful. Yeah. And you've seen me do that a lot. Absolutely. Yeah, I give yeah. away like drums and drumsticks and yeah. like, you know, things yeah. that I really care about. Sure. And it hurts. It genuinely hurts me to do that. And in that moment of pain, of giving something that's of value to me, the other person receiving it, whether they value or not, it or not, doesn't matter, but I get value out of giving. And I think it's one of the greatest paradoxes of humanity. I think a lot of people are yet to really embody and understand that as a teaching. When we give from a place where it's like genuinely offering something and it, there's a bit of tension or discomfort in doing it, we still we still receive. Yeah. Yeah. Could you describe what it is that you receive from your experience? Well, I think there's a letting go firstly, right? So there's a loss. Yeah. Right? There's and a, that's a great practice in yes. itself. Yeah, exactly, bro. And that's where it's like no, I I in the in the last 8 years I've I've lost everything that I've owned multiple times. Mm. Like through no. st stupid behavior, hmm. right? Lack of awareness and also um on, on times just generosity it was m more like it was just a lot of it was experimental i don't have a desire to do that again just to be <laughs> it's, it's just a really speak that yeah, one yeah, really yeah. as a prayer i'm pretty happy now with ownership of certain things so yeah i guess give giving the the pain of giving yeah there's something that i receive in that loss there's something where it's like there's there's a value and i think what it there's a freedom that comes in that where it's like you know, the, that Lakota, Lakota tradition is the influential individuals mm. in, in the community mm. would gift everything to those in need mm. and then would just recreate mm. and they would just do it again. Mm -hmm. And what, comes, what it comes down to is a belief in myself, in my relationship to humanity and the planet that even if I lose everything, I can still get it all back. Mm. And that's like a really deep embodied confidence mm -hmm. And what it's that's not that's not about manifestation or abundance. It's just actually being in power. Right. So there's two things that come up for me. First of all, this this trust that we're we're kind of held by something bigger. Yes. And then the second thing is kind of having this self belief and, and this understanding of one's own power that even if we do lose everything, we can just recreate it. Yes. There's two things I think. Yeah. One is this value. Like I know I bring value and yeah. I bring value not because of what I do, but because of what I can see, mm. like what I witness, like just my, the, the, my, my ability to observe the movement of energy mm. in and of itself is value. When I, when I look at like consultants in business, they go in and the first thing they do is just, they watch, they watch everything. Right. And in just sitting in a space, you want, want to know how a great a company works really well. Go and sit in it and watch. Watch, you know, how they get their paper clips, who brings them lunch, 
Like, it, it, just in watching those things, you start to understand a lot about an organization. And so what I came to realize is there's, there's value just in being the witness. And people would even pay you for that. Mm. And so, as you know, I get paid quite well to observe people breathing. Mm. And what I've done is I've spent over 10,000 hours watching humans breathe. Mm. And every time I do that, I get technically better at it. Mm. I get better at reading the subtleties and minutiae of a human. Mm -hmm. And there's value in that. So what I came to realize is there's value in being mm. and value in observing and witnessing. Mm. And that kind of uncoupled the Western capitalist belief that there's value in doing. That's it. <laughs> and so now I'm creating from this space of the value of being mm. and from that place going into right action, aligned action and doing. Yeah. And as a continued cycle of being, doing, being, doing, masculine and feminine, mm. pulsing between those, I get to create like incredible, like, yeah, experiences and, and mm. yeah, sh shared opportunities and yeah. I mean, this is just so incredibly valuable in the sense that I, I just connect with, with so many men and, that I speak to. And like one of the things that I continuously see is that their sense of self-worth, their sense of value comes much more from what it is that we're, they're doing versus an understanding of who they're actually being mm. within that process. And, and usually it, it, it kind of, it, it keeps this, them in these very staggering ups and downs you know, where at times they may receive validation or appreciation for the things that they do, but then as soon as, as that's not present, their sense of self-worth plummets in so many ways. And um, I mean, I, in many ways, have been as well exploring, yeah. you know, what is a more balanced approach around this idea of self-worth that is not defined on simply what I do in the world. And at the same time, I love to do. I, I love to contribute to some degree. So like there, there is a, there's a joy and pleasure that I find in that. But I think like getting caught up with our sense of self-value within that um, is definitely um, a path, I guess, that can bring us down destruction. Yeah. 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 Thank you, bro. Definitely. I think it's just, it's just an interesting one for us to continue to navigate mm. when our doing is validated with a financial exchange yeah. and then how we can continue to get rewarded from that yeah so perhaps we can kind of segue now yeah and, and start speaking just a little bit into the breath mm. and i want to speak a little bit more about yeah this relationship that you continuously see between the way people breathe or the way people show up and then how that as well uh translates over to the way people um are breathing yeah thank you bro i started I started on this journey, you know, over a decade ago now, and it started through movement. And I started to explore how I was moving. And what I realized is so much of my movement patterns were habituated and subconscious. And I started to excavate those. I started to make my movement a little bit more potent mm -hmm. and a little bit more aware and a little bit more conscious. And that led me down a path to, yeah, explore deeply yoga asana and then free movement and qigong. Mm -hmm. And those are all vehicles or practices for bringing presence and awareness to our movement so it was like i started down this path of embodiment and after a couple of years i discovered connected breathing and connected breathing was taking away all physical movement of muscles and only using the muscles of breathing as the vehicle of embodiment so i was just observing just the diaphragm 
the intercostals, maybe pelvic floor and throat. And then I brought one pointed focus into my internal landscape and I realized I didn't know how to breathe mm. and I had no awareness or control over my breath mechanics mm. uh, to the point where when I brought awareness to them, I went into a totally altered state of awareness and had zero control over my being, which was terrifying mm. um, and somewhat like liberating at the same time. <laughs> yeah, I can definitely relate. <laughs> I was like, you know, and, and yeah, to speak openly about your journey as well, if I may. Sure. Yeah, yeah I yeah. mean, like, you know, you came into the, the, the connected breath space in a very good space of movement, embodiment, yoga, exactly. awareness, right? Yeah. And then you step in and look, it's, it's really humbling because suddenly there's this technique that's really sharp and really clear and really focused. And it's like, hey, these are all of the places that you're still not aware of or embodied. Yeah. Like in yourself and in yeah. breath. And it was like, for me, it was like, oh, wow. Like I, I'm an absolute novice at this. Mm. I'm a novice at breathing. Mm. And for me, it was like 33 years old. Mm. I don't know how to breathe. Mm. And so, yeah, over time, I've gotten quite proficient at observing and understanding breath mechanics and creating the ability for my body to choose the breathing rhythm that's appropriate. So the ability for my subconscious mind, my body, to just pick the breath rhythm that's appropriate for the situation. What do you mean by that? Can you elaborate on that a little bit? And yeah. why would that be valuable? Thank you, bro. So basically, if our inhale is activating and our exhale is relaxing, that's like a reductionist approach, sure. which the listeners might value. Mm. As I inhale, I'm going to bring in more oxygen, more life force energy. As I exhale, I'm going to release CO2 and relax. So it's very reductionist and basic. There's a lot more going on. But if we just operate from that premise, if I can breathe with different speeds, shapes, and stability of breath, that's going to change the way that my nervous system is functioning and my endocrine system, my glands, which are influencing blood chemistry. So basically breathing is a direct gateway into changing our level of activation or relaxation, both in a breath element, our blood pH, and also our endocrine system, our blood chemistry. So I can change the quality of my being, of my feeling, by changing my breath rhythm consciously. So great. If I go through the conscious practice of changing all my breathing rhythms, that's fantastic. But I don't want to do that all day. Like I'm breathing 23 to 26,000 times a day. If I attempt to control my breath for 23 to 26,000 times a day, I can't speak I can't have conversations. I can't think. I can't interact with my son. There's a lot of things I can't do. So yeah. what's incredible about our subconscious is we buffer things into the subconscious so that we don't have to remember them. How to walk, how to back out of our driveway. These are all things that we know, right? And you can go back to a house four years ago that you were living at and you'll know how to back out the driveway without thinking about it. So that's the power of the subconscious. Now, we buffer things like breath into our subconscious. And unfortunately, our subconscious sometimes doesn't do it very well um, for a variety of reasons. Sometimes it's trying to protect us mm -hmm. and sometimes we've had a surgery or something that's influenced breath. So there's a lot of different reasons our breath might not be functioning correctly. So what we would love to see as a human is that we've got a full dynamic breath rhythm that's available from small, shallow to fast voluminous and everything in between. Mm -hmm. And that we can breathe all the way into the pelvic floor mm -hmm. and all the way into the top of the lung. Mm. Yeah, having an understanding of this and learning how to breathe more dynamically as well in my own life was really a game changer. And I, I remember, you know, 
like when I started on this journey and when I met you, one of the things that was really present for me on a continuous basis was anxiety. Yeah. I was constantly dealing with anxiety and this constant stress and pressure. And I, I didn't know how to balance that out with a level of relaxation within my life. And so I really had to cultivate, I guess, a bigger range, a bigger um, ability to fluidly move into deeper states of relaxation. And um, I recognize now that at times, you know, that can still be present, but it's not something that I experience chronically anymore. Yeah, and you. even if it does arise, it is something that I know how to be with um, with a level of confidence that wasn't present before. And uh, I guess just me sharing this, I want to mm. just speak in as well into the potency of this mm. technique and mm. how it literally like changed my life. Yeah, you know? thank you, bro. So, yeah, I mean, me as well. It changed my life to the point where it's like, wow, like there's life before breathwork and there's life after. Yeah. And yeah, I love witnessing your journey. It's been incredible. Um, and there were so many great qualities and attributes you'd already learned and already embodied by the time you showed up in the space to practice connected breathing. You know, uh, we kind of touched on it, and, and stress isn't the problem, right? Um, it's chronic habituated stress that's the problem, mm. and it's the inability to relax and integrate that stress that's yeah. the problem. Stress in and of itself is actually very healthy. I like to stress myself consistently, and I like to relax. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, if we're using survival energy, and if we're using rhythms of breath that are meant for escape mm. or that are meant for very small bursts, and we're using that throughout an extended period of time, the system is going to have a deep imbalance. Mm -hmm. And what is going to be required is it for, to, for it to rebalance. And that's typically overachievement into burnout, mm -hmm. which we see in a lot of leaders, CEOs, execs, founders. Mm -hmm. um, and what I've come to realize is if I wanted to build this organization to the depth and scale that I envision in the world, I needed to relax. And I needed to take time for me and I needed yeah. to take time out. And that's a continued practice. Mm. Yeah, and we kind of as well spoke into it that, you know, there's there's usually a reason why we stay in these default ways of being, these yes. habituated ways of being. Yes. And one of the explorations specifically in this modality that we're um, trained in is to explore, yeah, very often as well, the opposite side of the <laughs> spectrum and the things that people are shadowing, often for many reasons that we've as well already spoken into. But perhaps you can speak a little bit more around that journey of um, touching into those aspects that we may have not felt safe to get into or we were, you know, told continuously that it's not okay for us to go there what's the value of doing that and how does it as well impact the way we show up in our lives once we do have find the courage to actually go into those aspects and build a relationship to them yeah thank you bro well i think something more tangible i could take money right yeah. and which i think you know as as most listeners will have a, <laughs> a relationship to money and money is a store of value it gives us the ability to to purchase things and to meet our needs and as I grew up, there was, a, there was a paradox in my household where there was actually a, a fairly decent amount of money, but there was consistently never enough in the mindset, in the narrative, in what was being spoken to. And money was an excuse for my needs to not be met. We didn't have the money. Whereas it was just more a question of prioritizing. And so what that led me to have was a very confused relationship to money. Mm. And... 
it was money was evil on the one hand, but we needed it on the other. And so, you know, it took me quite a while to integrate that. And so what it led me to do was to basically work so hard that I almost went bankrupt. So you can, it comes back to this pendulum, right? That we kind of already touched into around behavior. The thing I was avoiding so much was, was bankruptcy or was loss or was zero, net zero or debt, even worse, right? And in, in avoiding it so much, I was striving for success to such a degree that the only possible outcome was failure. Mm-hmm. Why, why is that the only outcome in those moments when we're like so attached to, I guess, the success? Because working that hard is only going to lead to burnout, mm. right? It's just, it's just an inevitable. Mm. And clinging and gripping so much to something mm. is going to mean that I'm not going to achieve it, right? There's that, you know, when I look at people, and, and again, what it, de- what it depends on is how we define success, yeah. <laughs> right? Um, but ultimately... Financially, if I define success mm-hmm. as meeting my basic needs, financially meeting my basic needs, having enough left over to save for my future, and creating some wealth such that when I'm retiring, my needs are met. Mm-hmm. Like that's how I would define financial success, right? Mm-hmm. And that's actually quite a long-term game. And it's, it's, it, it, it's, I didn't know how to do that. My parents didn't know how to do that. They still don't. And, and they're figuring that out. But like, there's, a, there's a formula for that. Yeah. And it, it isn't about getting it done in the next year. It's about slow, steady steps over time. Mm. So for true financial freedom, you know, most great investors, they're looking at the long game. Yeah. Yeah. And so short-term bursts of energy to create any sort of legacy is not going to work. That's mm. ultimately like why I failed right. multiple times. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really feel like you're you're touching into. I guess the, um, what's the word I'm looking for, um, the futility mm. within uh, staying caught in one pattern, right? And and finding, you know, as we've been speaking about yeah. within the t- entire podcast so far, finding a the middle way. Yeah, the middle finding way. Finding a more balanced yeah. approach. We haven't really touched on it, and I think this would be really interesting for the listeners. How do they start finding, like, getting on this journey of finding the middle way? It seems like that is definitely a big path that you've been on. Uh, so what would that look like for our listeners to really get started on that journey? Yeah, thank you, bro. Well, the, as soon as you speak into that, the first thing that comes to mind is I don't really know. And then after that, when I, when I, when I actually sit and contemplate a bit more, I'm like... I'm like, well, the answer's right there. I don't. And where it actually comes from for me is a deeper sense of feeling. Yeah. And I think one of the things that we do with our clients is we unpack the feeling state, right? Mm-hmm. And it's tricky. And there's a lot of self-help, terrible self-help advice around do what feels right, right? Look, sitting on the couch and eating ice cream feels right. But if I keep doing that, in about two weeks, it's not going to feel right anymore, <laughs> right? So I think really the middle way comes back to this acknowledgement of moderation, Mm. but also how is my feeling body guiding me? Mm. Now, one of the problems that we've touched into on this is oftentimes our emotional states, they get a bit cross-wired. So vulnerability gets crossed with shame, right? Which it ought not to. It ought to be crossed with courage and and loving compassion, right? Mm. As an example. But if we've been shamed for vulnerability as opposed to celebrated for it with honoring the courage it takes to be vulnerable and then a compassionate 
receptivity, we're not going to do it anymore. So I think, you know, part of the problem that we face as humans is, oh, just do what feels right is terrible because most people's feeling compass is fucked, right? So the real depth of the work is to come back to our feeling compass mm. and acknowledge, why is it I feel guilty for taking a day off, mm. right? This is a total miswire in me that I had to navigate. I felt guilt for rest. I was guilted all the time when I was a child for not doing enough, for not being good enough, not getting good enough grades, all of these pieces. Guilt's really powerful. Yeah. It's an, I don't want to feel it. It sucks. Mm. And so in, in that wiring, I consistently avoided my own guilt of rest, mm. which led to burnout over and over again. So the answer for me to find the middle way is to start to explore what am I feeling? Mm. And then the next question is, why? Mm. And that's the deeper piece. Because uh, if I'm in a romantic relationship and it doesn't feel very good because my partner's holding me accountable mm. and I quit because it doesn't feel good, that's denial and avoidance, which is bullshit, right? Yeah. But if my partner's holding me accountable and it's making me have guilt because I'm not in integrity with my words and my agreements, good, lean into that, right? So I think what we need to get really clear on, why is the guilt coming up? And am I avoiding it because it doesn't feel good because I want to continue to have a lack of responsibility in my mm. life? Or is it actually because there's a path forward here mm. for me to be in greater integrity and accountability with myself and with other humans around me? Mm. Man, there's so much here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I want to just like reflect yeah. a few things back. I guess the, we, we spoke as well into how guilt and shame can come in mm. and they're crosswired with certain aspects of us that are actually quite natural. Yeah. And as a result, it impacts the way we um, operate in the world, yes. which is actually, of course, a very needed like sensation to have yes. to operate in society. But in in denying ultimately certain aspects of us that are quite natural. I mean, you spoke into you know the expression of emotional unavailability for men. Yes, like if you know if if that is if that is being shamed and guilted, like they're ultimately forced into that pattern. Yeah, even deeper. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, sh like shaming anyone, male or female, for emotional unavailability is, is a categorically the, and I will say it as a, as a definitive, worst thing we can do, mm. right? If, we, if, if someone's emotionally unavailable and you label it and then shame them for it, mm. guess what? Like they're now, they're, we got into a meta spiral of being shamed of being ashamed about our emotions. This is really tricky. Yeah. And it's, it's coming alive pretty, pretty, yeah, ferociously right now mm. in our culture and society. It's coming alive to be seen. Yeah. And, and as, as men or as emotionally unavailable women out there, it's, you know, it's our responsibility to connect more deeply to ourselves. Yeah. Culturally, collectively, it's, it's all of our responsibilities to acknowledge that compassion's the way forward here. Mm. Shame isn't. Yeah. And speaking into as well, like the path forwards for many, mm. it sounds like permission, first of all, the permission of our feeling state is, first of all, the first step. Yeah. And then as well, having this inquiry around, well, inquiry around the feeling state. So why am I feeling the way I'm feeling? Yeah. And as well, having an understanding of, well, I guess the one uh. thing as well that I got out of what you said was, that at times discomfort is needed mm -hmm. and there, there's, there's value in, in, in sitting in the discomfort when you were sharing about, you know, a partner perhaps as well, holding us accountable to something. Yes. Um, 
that is actually incredibly needed. And where that can get challenging is where we're in a continuous pursuit for something that may be gratifying, or as you said, something that feels good. Yeah, right? sure. Like it's tricky, right? Because we don't also want to feel all the feelings all the time. Mm -hmm. And I think emotionality is on a spectrum, right? So people are either not very emotional or they are very emotional. Neuroticism mm -hmm. in the big five is kind of yeah. how it's labeled, right? And then on the other spectrum that I like to put as a balancing metric is awareness. Mm -hmm. So people are not very emotional, not very aware, all the way through to very emotional and very aware. Mm -hmm. The worst combination of that is very emotional and not very aware, mm -hmm. which is really tricky which shows up in, in a lot of personality disorder. Mm. And so if we take that kind of spectrum of, yeah, ability to track our own emotions and how, what the vol volatility of the response is, mm. that starts to create a level of awareness that brings a lot more liberation. With that as well, I think there's also this kind of like thing that we need to realize is like, sometimes I wake up and I feel shit and I can spend like 20 minutes trying to figure out why. Guess what? It's because I'm human, right? <laughs> and so, also, we can like go into like the logic and reasoning or the, the, the desire to know yeah. and there just needs to be surrender. Mm. So if I have ironed out like top four, which I put as breath, sleep, movement and nutrition, if I'm fairly standard in those, then most of the time I'm going to feel pretty good, right? Depending on what else is going on in my life. And, and I think it's just important to not dive in too deeply to find the meaning about the feeling mm. all the time yeah. so again it's the middle way it's yeah. like yeah i don't really want the my my level of awareness to be internal as well so yeah we've got this really complex and nuanced thing that we're approaching around using emotions as a compass to guide us mm. and without honoring that yeah the presence of Fear, guilt, and shame, they're very, very powerful emotions. We want to avoid them. They're also very healthy at times. I want to be scared of venomous snakes. Yep. Uh, I want to be scared of having a bike accident. Mm -hmm. I don't want it to stop me you know, going for a walk or riding my scooter. Yep. So again, it's these moderations of like, when is this emotional response appropriate? And I think that's really what I started to question is like, what's the appropriateness of my emotional response right now? I'm coming in at an eight. And I'd be like, what would be like a reasonable emotional response? I'd be like a, a three. I was like, okay, well, so five of the, these emotions, right, mm. that I'm feeling, the intensity of five is not relevant. So yeah. why am I having that response? There's something here for me to look at from conditioning my, probably my childhood or a wound. What do you do in those moments? Like sit with it. And not change it. Yeah. And not have a desire to change it. Why is that important? Because otherwise I think I'm avoiding or bypassing. Like, and I, it's, ultimately it's a lack of acceptance of myself. Right. So then I'm getting into this like, yeah, I mean, you know, you and I have experienced this a lot with some of these more potent practices, breath of fire or some of the tantric practices of express and release. I'm using my mind to change my internal state as opposed to just noticing what's there. And if I get into a habit of doing that, I think it can be even more damaging. I'm angry. Oh, great. I'll go and beat the punching bag. Great. I mean, that's a good expression of anger. I'll go and pillow beat. Great. That's a great expression of anger. But what if I sit in the anger and I watch it mm. and I'm actually really with it? And yeah. I think what this comes back to is I wasn't taught to do that. Yeah. Why? Well, because my parents weren't very good at sitting in their anger. Mm. So they suppressed and exploded mm. as opposed to the middle way. Mm. So with Onyx, you know, with my son, I'm really content to say that his mother and I have both been really willing to sit with him in his emotional responses. Mm. And 
Yeah, I mean, time will tell, but his compass seems to be fairly attuned. And of course, I'm also saving money for his therapy, which every good parent ought to be doing because we're going to make mistakes because we're human. And my ability to own that and to apologize and to be willing to sit with him and pay for therapy for him and myself, mm. I think is my responsibility as a parent. Mm. Yeah, again, there's, there's so much here. Right? <laughs> Everything that you're sharing and so much gold, I guess... I definitely want to speak into, you know, fatherhood and yeah. uh, kind of just going to keep a side note, you know, for a bit later. But yeah. um, the thing that I'm hearing from what you said was we don't always want to explore a prescriptive approach for dealing with something. But we have to have a level of inquiry around what is the what is the moment asking of me? What is like needed in that moment? So yeah. you say that, you know, maybe what you're experiencing is an eight, but what's actually appropriate is a three, yeah. you know, to actually, and, and actually asking yourself the question, well, what do I need in this moment in order to really, um, yeah, I, I guess come to a sense of center again. Right? Yeah. We're very predictive as humans. We, we, we need it, right? We want to basically plot. I think one of the reasons that we've had evolution in the way that we have as humans is because we're able to pattern recognize and predict the future to, a, a terrible degree like we're yeah. really bad at it like that's the reality right and we think we're good at it and this is cognitive bias mm. and this is where data over feelings is actually very effective mm. when we start to track plot ourselves and look at our own data and look at our own patterns of behavior we can get really clear on what is and isn't working for us and so as we're predictive oftentimes we take experiences from our past and we layer them into the now mm. and we say well this happened before mm. and so i'm going to predict that this will happen again yeah. now that's dangerous because the world is very dynamic Exactly. And so we've taken a very reductionist approach to attempt to make things safe and easy in our mind. Simple example would be like sitting here in this podcast studio and imagining that the conversation would be the same as previously. I've sat in this podcast studio. It's not. It's never going to be. right? Absolutely not. But the same is with breath. If I approach breath as a breathwork practitioner mm. with the belief that this client is going to breathe in any way the same as the previous client, I'm giving them a total disservice. Yep. What we train as breathwork practitioners is the ability to be with what is moment to moment, breath to breath. Mm. I, you've never taken the same breath twice. Yep. I've never guided you on anywhere near the same journey. You've always had, categorically, always had very different expressions. 100%. There might be some qualities that I can see that are thematic, that are consistent. But for the most part, your expression is going to be unique. And I think there's value in us as beings to kind of approach each new day and be like, Okay, well, what's going to happen today? Yeah. Just because I'm doing things that are similar, like it's going to be different. Mm. And if we haven't had a lot of safety and security in our childhood, it's likely we would attempt to control and have a lot mm. of safety and security as adults. Mm -hmm. What I'm interested in is leaning into new experiences. We need mm. both. We need mm -hmm. consistency, safety, and security, and we need these new experiences. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I like to kind of explore that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it allows us as well just to be more in the moment and actually be more connected to the aliveness of each moment you yes. know, versus um, having what happened in the past, you know, or like, you know, having been in the, let's say in a podcast studio yesterday yeah. and then like imagining or imposing that, you know, exactly this is what's going to be happening today. So I, totally. I, I believe there is an, um, a flavor here that really allows us to be more connected to the aliveness and as well the dynamism that is continuously present within our experience. And I think that's a practice, right? Mm -hmm. And I, this is why I love being a breathwork practitioner and having spent this amount of time. You sit there and you watch and you go, I don't know. Yeah. And that, that, that moment yeah. 
is when you start to be in service of the client, mm. right? Because you say, I don't know. And it's this willingness to admit that we don't know, mm. which I think is incredibly humbling. Yeah. And I think that's the place that we start to approach life from mm. with newness and with openness moment to moment. Mm -hmm. And I can speak about it in romantic relationships as well. It's mm -hmm. like, just because I've had X, Y, or Z in a romantic relationship doesn't mean it's going to be here in the next exactly. one. But if I believe it is, I'm probably going to approach it from that same space and mm -hmm. recreate the same thing again. Yeah, or we have been noticing, let's say, in a partner, a certain pattern, and we are continuously imagining that they're going to be so sh like showing up a certain way. Yes. You know, it doesn't really allow them as well to show up in a new way. No. If we're constantly as well already preparing ourselves that they're going to show up this way. There's managed expectations in there, yeah. right? And this is where, like, you know, some of the deeper father-mother wounds start to play out in a romantic mm -hmm. relationship because we're projecting... A, a way or a pattern of behavior that we've witnessed, mm. you know, and we're bringing it forward again. Mm. When we go through these experiences of collapse, we wipe the slate clean and we come back to a version of ourselves that can be like very, very new. Mm. And we allow ourselves to basically no longer operate with those previous predictive mechanisms that kept us safe in our childhood. Yeah. And now we're like, okay, what's here? Yeah. What, how does this human relate to me? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this touches really back into kind of how we started this whole conversation mm. around this idea of breakdowns and as well being humbled by our experiences. Um, we've been speaking about relationship on a broader spectrum. Sure. But I would love to hear as well, how does that, like, how is that um, connected to engaging with other people? Mm. And we've spoken to a few things, how we may want to module, like, we're Conditioned into modulating people's behavior through guilt and shame. You already yes. described how it's like the worst thing that we can do. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, and we are as well like uh, constantly perhaps stuck in what has happened before with maybe an ex-partner. Um, so I'm, I kind of want to as well move into this conversation of, well, how, how do we navigate that in intimate relating with other people? Um, I guess the first thing I want to speak into, if, if you notice um, like in those moments when we are maybe entrained to meet a pattern with shame and guilt for our partners, what do you believe would be a more mm -hmm. appropriate path forwards? Yeah, thank you, bro. I think, you know, shame, guilt, and fear are really, <clears throat> they're the emotions that are the cornerstones or the foundation for manipulation, mm -hmm. right? And so if someone is wielding or leveraging fear, guilt, or shame against us, they're being, ultimately, they are being manipulated. Yeah, right? they are, they're being directed into a certain way of being. Y yes. And <clears throat> the first thing I think is to honor innocence, right? Mm -hmm. So it's just like, hey, like this person thinks that this is the way to get needs met. Mm -hmm. And so outside of that, I think really, there's the first thing is, is inquiry and choice, but also speaking into what our, our want or our need is first. Mm -hmm. Without in any way attempting to influence the outcome of the other person. So I think this is what's like kind of... I think that's where a lot of people get stuck, right? Yeah. And there's also this subtle difference between influence and control. But ultimately, when I operate from like game theory, the idea of one plus one equals, equals five, right? That's where I would like to approach relationship from. And what this means is I, in relationship, romantically or otherwise, when I go to meet my need and I cooperate with someone else, I want their need to also be met. I don't want it to be a cost to them, yeah. right? And so, yeah, I think I like to operate now with this idea of win-win-win. How can everyone win? Mm. And and that's, I think that's in terms of game theory, I think it's possible. Yeah. What it really touches on for me is just this 
yeah, deep honoring of the other person versus yes. finding, yeah, like this way of attempting solely to get our needs met at the expense of another. This is the key, right? Mm. So am I meeting my needs with them mm. or am I meeting the, my needs through them? Mm. And as mm. soon as we start to meet our needs through someone else, it's codependency and manipulation. Mm. And it's only going to be a one-way street to misery. Mm. And what it requires is us to get radically honest around ourselves and around how we're an autonomous human and we're very capable of meeting our own wants and needs, mm. firstly. So we need to be self-reliant to a high degree. Mm -hmm. And with that, we need to acknowledge there are a whole bunch of needs that we're not going to meet on our own. Yeah. Like I've done a lot of time alone mm. in, in solitude, in, in, in isolation as well. Yeah. And what I came to realize is it's not very enjoyable. <laughs> and so, you know, those other qualities of connection and joy and love and pleasure that I am seeking in a reasonable balanced way with responsibility, mm. I, I want those to be met. Mm. And I want to speak to them without the associated Christian shame as an example around sexual expression. Mm. Um, yeah, or like wealth and abundance as well could be present. There could be some shame around that as well. Mm. So yeah, I, I, I think the key here is how do we meet our needs together? Mm. And that is now we start getting into a deeper quality of relating. Yeah, I love that, you know, and for me, the word, you know, that comes up is interdependence. Yes. Right? And it's it, it as well comes in the spectrum of independence and, and codependence. Yeah. Right? And, and for us to come together in a way where we sure, you know, to a certain extent, we can meet our own needs. But then as well, we understand the limitation of what it is that we can maybe do on our own. We, we tap into the part of us that, yeah, like that. To a certain degree, that can be quite tender, and there is a recognition. Oh, to a certain degree, I do need this person. Yeah. Right. And and we we come together in this way. Yeah, I think you know it's really interesting to assess needs versus wants, right? Mm. Because if you come can back, you tell to me it, the difference. Yeah, sure. So like, a need is 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 a requirement for for me to thrive, hmm. in terms of my physical, mental, and emotional. Like, let's just start there, right? Sure. So physically, mentally, emotionally, I have needs: water, food, and some quality of connection hmm. is is actually like acknowledge as being a human need now having done time in isolation like in terms of like five months living in a stone cottage with very little human yep. contact no phone no internet no electricity like i realized that i'm actually pretty okay on my own mm. um it wasn't very fun but it was possible so that helped me to acknowledge that i i a level of neediness kind of dropped out of me because i was able to self-resource yeah and then so needs i think it's very sticky to label desires as needs hmm. and then ask our partner to meet them. Why is that? Why do you believe that's challenging? Well, because I think a lot of people use desire to meet, to, to, to emotionally regulate. Hmm. So I'll just speak right into it. Like sex is an obvious one. Sex is yep. not a need. Yep. It's a want. Like, hmm. And we just have to get clear about that. You can just research it anywhere. And it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a fairly common piece in understanding around humanity, right? Hmm. Nurturance is very likely to be on the edge of need want like humans need a certain sense of nurturance yeah. right but that can show up in physical contact or it could mm. show up in just someone holding some space mm. as well it doesn't even need to be physical so i think it's interesting to explore this idea for physical connection and whether yeah. it's a need or a want and so look i mean i open the can of worms and like sex is one of them sure right and uh you know for men and women this mm. is an interesting exploration it's a very powerful energy mm. it feels really good mm -hmm. we want to probably engage in it and it can get really easily weaponized in relationships. Yeah. Do you believe there is a certain spectrum um, <coughs> and as well a subjective, I guess, understanding around needs and wants? You know, like maybe that for one person, certain 
thing may not be a need, but then for another, like, is there a sense of subjectivity, I guess, connected to that? Or is it really more, would you say, biological? I think it's subjective, biological. I think we can define it really clearly. Yeah, and I think if we do that and we all get clear about it, it kind of pulls away, like, this idea that I need you to meet my need. It's like you don't, right? So... I think that I think it's important to get there as well. Yeah. In in romantic relationship, it allows for really good and managed expectations. Yeah. Um, I, I am capable of holding myself, mm. and sometimes it's nice to have someone hold me. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm capable of holding myself, and sometimes I need support from someone else. Yeah. Right. And in admitting that, there's a vulnerability. Mm. How I choose to get that need met is up to me. I can do it through a clear request or through financial exchange in terms, not talking about sex here, by the way, <laughs> talking about like therapy as an example, right? Mm-hmm. So like I've got great friends and I've got a really great team. And if I need support, I'm going to reach out. And if that isn't available, I've got people I can pay mm-hmm. to emotionally support me, 100%. right? If my partner's not available to emotional support me and they've made that clear, I'm not going to shame them into that. I'm going to honor them and say, you don't have capacity right now. Great. I totally get it. I'm fully resourced. And the problem is if I'm not fully resourced, I might use a manipulative tactic to get my need met. Mm. How can we live from a deeper place of honoring where another person may be at and at the same time honor ourselves in the process? I think it's this ability to recognize that my need is not more important than theirs. Mm. I think this is, <laughs> fuck, this is so important. I mean, I, I, I just see like, I mean, I just think of past experiences in relationship, you know, where there was this imposition of, okay, no, like my needs are more important than yours in this no, moment. Yeah. And uh, it was interesting because I mean, based on my makeup of my conditioning, I bought into it so many damn times. Sure, bro. You're you know? a good spiritual man. You're showing up and you're like, yeah, I'll, I'll do anything I can to meet your needs. Yeah. I'm here for you. Hmm. Yeah. And that's that overgiver quality that, yeah. you, that shows up, right? And I relate to that so fully and deeply. Mm. What I've really been celebrating more recently is, is acknowledging where my boundaries are and being like, hey, look, I'm very capable of showing up fully Mm. in romantic relationship Mm. and this is where the line is drawn Mm. and yeah there's a frustration that comes alive in me when people attempt to use a variety of different tactics to cross that boundary and not honor me and i won't engage in romantic relationship with people Mm. that do that yeah and i guess what's as well really required in that moment is to have that ability to yeah as you said like be willing to have another person be disappointed in us yes and as well have this ability to speak to a boundary actually and, yeah. and st- like stay firm, stay steady. Oh, totally, hey, bro. Right? Look, what I'm really practicing and learning more and more in, in, in a lot of areas, romantic for sure, but also in, in business is this compassionate no, mm. right? And so initially I can put a boundary up and it's great. Yeah. There it is. Everyone hears it. We're good, right? And then, yeah, if it's pushed against the first time, I'm like, yeah, it's a no. And then the third time, I start to I start to power up a little bit. Mm. But if someone pushes against a boundary four or five times, yeah. I do become angry. Mm. And I th- I'm what I'm learning to do is just disengage mm. more rapidly mm-hmm. because that anger isn't serving me or them. Yeah. This is a person that isn't hearing my no, mm. isn't willing to honor my needs, mm. and just keeps pushing. Yeah, and that's probably just coming out of their own neediness. Yeah, and their inability to resource themselves. And but that's kind of tough to relate to. Exactly. Yeah. And I love how you speak into that, you know, even if that person doesn't honor your, you know, express uh, expression or boundary in that moment or your limitation, 
you can still stay in an empowered position where you just decide to disengage even if the person cannot actually yes. like honor your request. Yes. Right. Yeah. And I've been loving this opportunity to just take space for me mm-hmm. and hold me in that as well. Yeah. And look, to be clear as well, like um, <clears throat> there's been many occasions where I've, I've received no's and they've been really tough to receive mm. yeah, either totally. the way they've been delivered or the energetic that's behind them. Mm. Um, and yeah, I've had to really learn to sit in and with that mm. and hold myself in those and sit in the rejection of the no. Yeah. And especially in, in physical intimacy. Mm. Like that's been really tough. Yeah. Uh, during times of like, you know, when, when, when Jess was pregnant with Onyx as well, like that was really tough for me to mm. receive that. And, you know, pregnant women are well within their right to say no to men. Mm. <laughs> They're like growing human. Mm. And uh, that was something I really had to learn. And, mm. and it was tough. 100% connect to this in so many ways and mm. um, it, it was really humbling in those moments you know when and it, it, it as well required me to as well look at myself like where am I demanding that another person yeah. is meeting my needs sure um, yeah and, and as well just being with that tender part of me that yeah. is actually yeah just there but it there is a gift in that and to a degree because yes. it allows us to build a relationship to that tender part yes. that is constantly hidden yes. within that person me- maybe meeting that yeah thing, right yeah exactly look if we keep entering into the codependency <clears throat> they're enabling us to yeah. not actually hold ourselves yeah. they're not serving us so what i come to recognize is there's a gift in the no hmm. and if i hear that gift if i if i hear the no hmm. and then i re- reflect on like is this a need or a want hmm. and then i go okay well this is a need hmm. how else do i meet it well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to meet it somewhere else, hmm. right? And, and that becomes particularly sticky with this desire for physical intimacy and connection where as men, categorically, we need to be able to move our own sexual energy on our own. Otherwise, we're going to continue to be easily weaponized and manipulated by sexual energy from women. Hmm. And that's on us. We've got to learn that. Hmm. And that's been a really great lesson for me. This is such an important topic. I would love to get into it, but for time's sake, we won't be able to. But I had uh, as well another conversation with um, mutual friend Alex Grundy, where we spoke quite deeply about that and the importance of that. And I just highly stand by, you know, what you just said and the importance of that and self-sourcing ourselves versus, yeah, like the imposing that our needs to, are met you know, by another, by outsourcing them. Yeah, right? there's an, a, a neediness in sexual relations doesn't feel very good for me. Absolutely. It's not inviting. Yeah, maybe anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. And maybe there was a time where I kind of enjoyed that quality sure. was coming alive in women there where mm. they were like, you know, there's a hunger or a neediness there. Mm. But I think that that doesn't appeal to me anymore. Mm. Um, yeah, because it's probably going to lead to some quality of dependency on me to provide them with that, mm. which is going to be likely exhausting yeah yeah <laughs> to close off this conversation it's, yeah. it's been such a rich conversation where we went into <laughs> so, so many different <laughs> topics and like it to a certain degree there is this yeah joyful sense of overwhelm in the sense that i i just want to speak like longer with you but um i i really feel like i can't leave this conversation without speaking about yeah your relationship to onyx and uh, uh speaking as well about fatherhood and thank you bro. i saw this beautiful instagram story that you shared today that uh. you know where you had um a photo with your son and yeah. you were sharing about how it's such a gift for you to really um be the father for your son that you never had yeah um i would if you're open to it i would love for you just to speak a little bit more about that and how stepping into fatherhood has shaped you yeah thank you bro yeah it's been really tough Mm. yeah honestly it's been it's been really difficult um yeah without going into too much information on on certain elements because i want to respect jess onyx's mom um i'm I'm a 42 year old co-parenting dad 
and I find myself in this very interesting chapter in my life. Mm. And um, yeah, ultimately to be a father currently in our culture and society, for me at least, is, is challenging mm. um, on, a, on a number of different levels. And so, I mean, you saw my Instagram story because it's, it's on my close friends. So I don't share things about Onyx mm. publicly, right. right? So that's one thing where it's like, uh, there's a lot of kind of uh, backlash towards fathers in general. Mm. So I think well, the first thing that I really had to confront um, was my, my own relationship to my father, which I reconciled. Uh, I hadn't been in touch with my father for about a decade. And when I found out I was going to be a father, I, I reconnected with him. And I started to hear a little bit more about his experience and his stories and his challenge that he faced in being a father. And I had a desire to do things differently. My parents divorced when I was three and a half and my father essentially moved away and remarried and had three kids and essentially started a new family. And I, I never really blamed him for that. I really understood why he did that. And in reconnecting to him, I had a much deeper understanding of why he did that. Mm. And <clears throat> unfortunately, I was faced with the exact same challenge for reasons I won't state publicly, but uh, chose, Jess and I chose to separate and move to Bali and, and co-parent. And so I found myself facing the same situation where this child, this son, who I cared very much for and was obviously projecting a lot of my own story onto, I... I made a decision that I would be there for him. Mm. And I've been advocating sometimes fiercely for that. Mm. I see Onyx six days a week. And yeah, I got to wake up with him this morning. It's taken three and a half years for him to be able to stay the night with me due to co-sleeping and, 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 and breastfeeding. And so I've rewritten that story. Mm. Um, I have been there for him in the way that my father wasn't. And I will continue to do that. And what that has meant is on the one hand, there's been sacrifice um, and continues to be. And I love that. And, and this is where, again, like what I'm sacrificing is so worth it for these moments of seeing him healthy. And I think I just put such a value on, on legacy. His, his ability to meet his wants and needs and his, his patterns of behavior are a direct reflection of, of how he's been relating to me yep. and his mom and, and society more, more broadly. I, as a father, you know, as a, I think, you know, it was a really big wake up where it was like, you know, I had to step out of Peter Panning and start to really stare down the responsibility of what it meant to provide in a variety of different ways for a human. And I'm, I think, you know, if it was a daughter, the projection would have been same but different. Um, but because it's a son, it's really, it's really strong, right? And what that means is, I don't want him to experience my pain and suffering. Um, whew, that brings up a lot. I, I, and I want him to experience like freedom and love and joy and connection. Mm. And yeah, what that means is I had to, to be able to meet him in that I had to take a really big inventory of myself and my life. And he's a pretty clear mirror. He shows me where I'm... I'm still got a lot of work to do, you know, in terms of the way I relate and mm. my emotional sensitivity slash control. Um, mm. Yeah, kids are great at pushing <laughs> buttons and finding boundaries. So, yeah, I've really enjoyed holding steady with mm. him to him around certain things. And I love explaining things to mm. him. He works really well with logic and reasoning and, and children are just incredibly intelligent, mm. you know. Yeah. 
yeah, in this in these two years that I know you, it's been incredibly inspiring me uh, for me to see how you were relating to your son and how as well devotional and committed you um, are to spend time with him and to be with him, right? And mm. uh, I, I do recognize it. It comes at I guess at a certain cost, you know, yeah. to you know time that you would have maybe for yourself, but totally. like. I, I can just see like you were just so dedicated to that and I've always admired that quality in you. Thank you, um, bro. So yeah, I just yeah. want to express that out to you. And um, yeah, I'm curious to hear what do you believe is the thing that Onyx really taught you or what, is, what are some of those biggest lessons that he has been teaching you? Well, I think the biggest one is that he's infinitely wise mm. and I got to stay out of the way, yeah. right? So, <laughs> um, you know, humans have a desire for, for love and freedom, naturally hardwired in them, and want to thrive. And it's only in my getting in the way of that that I would create something that really needs to be addressed later in life. And so what that means is, like, as a dad, I kind of think that, like, my, like most of my responsibility relies it revolves around stopping him from falling off things that are high like that's kind of like, <laughs> <it's> like <laughs> and so and then with that as well just like acknowledging that like there's this quality of a good enough parent like i don't want to polarize i don't want him to never have discomfort and i yep. don't want him to always have joy you know mm. life is going to give us these teachings and i think presence like consistent presence like he's quite often just there really there with me an abundance of energy, which has meant that I've, you know, for a variety of different reasons, I've changed a lot of lifestyle factors for me around, yeah, I mean, alcohol consumption is zero. Uh, I modulate my sleep. I'm very mindful about diet. Th these are reasons, and, and movement as well, I've paid a lot more attention to. I want to be able to stay active and vibrant with him. And that's very motivational. I want to, yeah give him the opportunity to learn how to surf if he wants to and be there for him in those situations. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of things that a young, this young man who's really vibrant, who's coming in, he's four and, almost four and a half now and I'm 42 and it's just like, shit, like I got to take care of myself if I really want to share these experiences with him. And so, yeah, I do. I really want to share those experiences with him. Mm -hmm. So I think, yeah, he's taught me a lot about presence. Also innocence, mm -hmm. you know, because ultimately he's operating out of a space of innocence. Mm -hmm. And so it's allowed me to recognize there are these certain qualities that he has in human behavior that he will use or he will attempt to use to get his needs met out of pure innocence. Mm -hmm. And when I explain to him there's a different way, he will adopt it. Mm -hmm. And what I've noticed is if I meet him in a way that I'm listening and that I care, he knows that he doesn't have to shout or manipulate mm. or do any of those other things. And so I hope that I can show that to more and more people and mm. especially bring that more deeply into a, a, a new potential romantic relationship yeah. um, where I can actually show up and show mm. genuine presence and compassion and show that other person that any of their patterns or adaption that they have, they don't need yeah. anymore. And this is such a gift, I imagine, for, to so many you know, parents, you know, just, just hearing what you said, you know, and as well, it's, it really speaks as well into this good hearted nature that we all, ha all yeah. have, you know, this good hearted nature yes. that we're not here to do harm or do wrong. Right. And yes. it's just this, yeah, like it, I guess being with him and just sharing with him, there is another way that he actually wants to do that. Yes. Right? But there is a, maybe a level of ignorance or naivete that is present, you know, which is of course understandable as a yeah. child, you know, that we can't bypass, I guess. Yeah. Right? And we have to work with. Totally. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the teaching 
the things that I'm, you know, I'm teaching him by being and, and by him watching me. And if I, if I relate with compassion to him, he relates with compassion to me. Mm. As he's getting a little older, I'm starting to request more of him mm. in reasonable ways. Like, so there's an Inuit saying that, that, you know, that white people have a tendency to basically overestimate emotional capacity and underestimate physical capacity. Interesting. And what that means is we, I, we assume that our children aren't physically capable, but are emotionally capable. Hmm. And, and I like that. And so what that means is to reverse that, I test him more physically and still acknowledge that he's quite young emotionally and or mentally. And so I help, I ask him now to help me like, you know, he offers now, but I initially I asked him to help me carry things for dinner and now I'll come over and he'll start setting the table. And he starts to have a sense of like, you know, gratitude and appreciation for what we're doing. We're co-creating now. And it's not that like, you know, I think he's just, he's more helpful, yeah. you know, in that sense and in that way. Um, yeah. So I think that's been, that's been really fun as well. Mm. What do you believe is one message that you would like to pass on to your son or what would you, yeah, like if you envision your son stepping into maturity stepping as well into adulthood what is it that you would like to leave him with maybe an understanding a way of living yeah i think it comes back to what we were exploring around the magnitude of relationship it's to continue to explore how things are in relationship mm. and it's it's not that there's like a static lesson that's learned it's like let's just keep learning mm. and as he's four and a half Next year, there's a whole new set of lessons for me, you know, next week even. <laughs> but it's this idea that like we, we're continually learning. One thing with Onyx, you know, I'm learning to be a parent. He's not learning to be a child. He's <laughs> just being. And so I love that. <laughs> I have to learn how to be a parent. He just has to be. Um, so fascinating because it's, it feels so like opposing to what I feel like I've been taught. It's like, yeah. I'm being reprimanded for being a child. No. Yeah. <laughs> Growing See, up. You no. know, that's and he's just reminding me how I ought to be living. <laughs> yeah. He's the one teaching me. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I, and I, and I'm stopping him from falling off tall things and, and sure. you know, like, uh, sure. yeah. Creating spaces uh -huh. of safety. So I think that's, I suppose if I could embody that in him, and he would really feel and believe in that, then he would do the same for his children if he chooses to have them. Mm. That's probably going to be the biggest gift I could right. give him in terms of legacy. Huh. So it sounds like y you supporting him is actually more about you and em embodying more of what he's already like living so innately. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, and this is a remembering and unlearning. It's coming back to the childlike qualities with responsibility. With responsibility. Beautiful, brother. And this conversation has been absolutely epic. So epic, right? We've gone into so many different, <laughs> um, yeah, subject matters. And I mean, I would definitely love to have you back in the future. And um, there's there's so many other things that we never really had a chance to get into. Sure. But, I mean, I would love to come back and, and yeah, maybe even explore a little bit more around being, being a father or mm. also some of the elements we touched into around sexuality and relationship. I think those are both really exciting to, to discuss 100%. more. And that's, yeah, I mean, you know, these are things that I'm as well continuously exploring. So yes. that would be something that I'd be interest, very interested in. I would love to leave on final note with a question in regards to, yeah, I mean, first of all, the, the thing that I really love to explore is that to a certain degree, the quality of the life that we live is at times predicated around the 
quality of the questions that we ask ourselves and mm. that we explore continuously within our lives. I'm wondering what is one question that you would like to leave our listeners with that they may be able to support within their life? And yeah, I'm wondering, so that would be the first part. And the yes. second part would be, um, based on the conversation that we've had over the last two hours, what is one message that you would like to leave our listeners with? Yeah, so thank you, bro. The one, the one question that I would like everyone to ask themselves on a continuum mm. is how am I breathing? And, and the how is like in this moment, how am I breathing? So observation of that, but also how am I breathing? It's to actually understand a little bit more about breath mechanics. Mm. What's going on inside my body? And so I think that is the contemplation of what is this meat suit that I'm yeah. in? So that, that's the one question. Incredibly potent question. And what was the other part? Yeah, the second part uh, is based on the conversation that mm. we've had over the last two hours. Mm. What is one underlying message that you feel, um, yeah, has been really important to you that you feel like you would like to um, just pass on to our listeners? I think it, it, it would be around compassion. Mm. And it would be around this idea that both, both us, like we, me, I, and everyone around us, we're all doing the best that we can mm. with what we have and the information that we have and the yeah. levels of awareness that we have at the time. And so it's that continued lens of innocence that we can view others through. Mm. Um, and that would be my sort of, yeah, my message would be like, let's just continue to have compassion with self-responsibility mm. and compassion whilst holding others accountable. Mm. I love that. And I love as well how it's framed within that tension, you know, yeah. with responsibility. And yeah, I mean, just speaking into it quite shortly, um, tapping into compassion has been really one of the most potent paths towards my healing journey because um, the very strong ingrained pattern was for me self-judgment, right? And being incredibly harsh yeah. to myself. And so to find a new way and to actually discover that innocence, that good-hearted nature that yeah. you see in your own child sure. and really witness that as well in myself yeah. that I, I, I don't want to do harm. Thank I, you. I, I want to do good. And I, I know I'm speaking about myself right now, but I want to really speak into the listener here and yeah. for them to understand that, hey, you know, like we're, we're just doing the best that we can. Thank right? you, bro. And at the same time as well, holding, of course, you know, those t that tension between responsibility as well. Yeah, because I think, you know, if we're on the spectrum of having too much self-responsibility, mm. then without the compassion, that's when that critical self-judgment really can come up. So, yeah, yeah holding both of those simultaneously. And yeah. I've witnessed you come into this beautiful space of self-compassion. Even, you know, the, the way that you that you teach and the way that you speak, you just, there's just a lot more sort of ease and spaciousness that's come alive in acknowledging your, your own humanity. Mm. Thank you so much, brother. <laughs> so good. <laughs> All right. Well, um, I'd like to just close off this conversation and just asking you, where can our listeners find you? Thank you, bro. I think in the, the dreaded and wonderful Instagram. So you can just go to Edward Dangerfield. It's just my name. Yeah. Um, and that's probably the, the easiest and best way to engage with me. Mm -hmm. I've been a little bit more inspired there recently. Beautiful. I'll make sure as well to, um, yeah, just put the link as well in the show notes. Is there any interesting projects, any interesting, yeah, in interesting coming up that you would like to bring our listeners to awareness to? I think following Breath Lab would be interesting. Okay. So, yeah, um, Breath Lab, you can find it through, through, through me. Um, or just find it there as well on Instagram. Um, partnered with Satori Clark, who's a, yeah, just a part of Breathwork Bali and FBR as well. And what we're 
exploring, and it's going to be a long journey, is mapping brain function to breathing rhythm. Mm. So we, we have, I have this, we, but definitely I, Satori's a little bit more skeptical in a healthy way, but I have a belief that as we map some of the breathing rhythms, we're going to find that they elicit very specific brain functions mm. and very specific emotional responses. And I strongly believe that if we get clearer at decoding breathing rhythms, we're going to be able to create new pathways for really great mental and emotional health. Yeah, that's definitely a very revolutionary, yeah, path forward, you know. So thank you. Um, Edward, yeah, I mean, I've already expressed it, but just so much appreciation, so much gratitude for you and like having known you, you now for two years and, you know, kind of starting off in this mentor-teacher relationship, you know, and moving into deeper friendship, especially over the last one and a half years has been such a blessing. And um, yeah, just deeply want to thank you. Thank you, know, you for so being such a friend and yeah. continuously being able to learn from you. Yeah, it's been a really great conversation to be here. And I think there's, there's so many more that we'll have in the future. And yeah, yeah, a lot of love and appreciation for you, bro. Thank you. Thank you. All right. And to our listeners, thank you all for coming in. Thank you for dropping into this podcast. I hope you received value. Uh, and until next time, much love. Thank you for listening to this episode. Your time and attention is truly appreciated. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to subscribe to stay tuned for my upcoming episodes. And in case you know somebody who would find this episode helpful, I encourage you to pay it forward. Finally, if you've personally been receiving value from the show, one way you're able to support this podcast is by leaving a five-star rating and a written review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Not only does this help more people find the show, but it also supports me in bringing more incredible guests on for the future. I'm your host, Alex Lehman, and until next time, signing off.